Let's start with a prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for this group and for the dinner that we had. Please bless us. Please bless all the words that are said. Let what you intend to be said be what's heard. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I, once upon a time, belonged to a square dance club that had this elderly couple in, in it named Ed and Evelyn. And they had done their courting back in the 1940s. And while they were courting, one year when Evelyn's birthday came around, Ed was out of town. So he was going to have to mail her a birthday present. Well, he didn't know what to get and, and consulted with his sister and decided, well, he was going to get her a pair of gloves. So his sister took him down to the store and helped him pick out a pair of gloves to mail to Evelyn. While they were there, his sister purchased a pair of panties. Well, unfortunately, the shop girl mixed up the packages when she handed them to him. <laughs> and she handed, she handed Ed the package of panties. Not realizing this, Ed mailed the box of panties to Evelyn along with this note. Dearest darling, this little gift is to show you I have not forgotten your birthday. I chose these because I noticed you are not in the habit of wearing any when you go out in the evening. <laughs> if, if it had not been for my sister, I would have chosen the long ones with buttons. But she said the short ones are more in fashion and would be easier to remove. <laughs> these, these are a delicate shade, but the lady I bought them from showed me the pair she had been wearing for three weeks, and they were hardly soiled. <laughs> <laughs> I had the sales girl try them on, and she really looked smart. <laughs> How I wish I could put them on you for the first time. <laughs> no doubt other men's hands will come in contact with them before I have a chance to see them again. <laughs> when you take them off, blow in them before putting them away as they will naturally be a little damp from wearing. <laughs> be, be sure to keep them on while cleaning them or they might shrink. I hope you will like them and wear them Friday night. All my love, Ed. P.S. Just think how many times I will kiss the back of them during the coming year. The latest style is to wear them unbuttoned and hanging down. <laughs> Obviously, that letter got taken out of context, right? And, and, and that's my, my explanation for what we're going to do tonight. And that is that you just really cannot study Jeremiah or any of the prophets of the Bible without understanding the context. You will be just as confused as Evelyn was when she got that package of panties in that note. And so we're going to go back... A little bit because Jeremiah, the whole the whole Bible is a story of a love affair. And Jeremiah takes place after the courtship, after the marriage, and right on the brink of divorce. And so I'm going to take you back through the courtship and marriage so that you understand the history of this couple before we get to the brink of divorce. 
Falling in Love. Once upon a time, God created an amazing, beautiful, exciting environment and populated it with all sorts of fantastical animals like zebras and peacocks and whales. He decorated it with mountains and waterfalls and trees and beautiful, fragrant flowers. And in the center of his creation, he made a special private garden. For it was here he would place his most special, most beloved creation, a companion for himself, someone to love and to be loved by, someone who could think and choose and talk and laugh and love with him. Someone as much like himself as possible for a created being. Take a look at Genesis 126. Let us make man in our image. Male and female, he created them. Okay. And then he says later in Genesis 5-2, they summarize that same story. It says he created them and blessed them. But if you look closely at Genesis 1.26, it says, let us make man in our image. When God said that, who was the us he was talking about? Who would we presume that would be? Christ and the Holy Spirit, Christ and the Holy Spirit right? Okay. And we know that God, the Father, Jesus Christ, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are somehow separate. But we also know that they're somehow not separate, right? That it's still one God, the God of the Jews. It's one God, right? The very essence of God is intimate relationship, as expressed in that trinity. And that would be a concept that would be virtually impossible for us to grasp so God, God's very first act was to make a way for us to understand the concept. The first thing he did was create a mate for Adam. He made us male and female. He invented marriage. And he did this in part so that we can understand the kind of relationship he wants with us. You know, otherwise we wouldn't get it. But by, because of marriage, we understand what's meant by the word intimate. You know? Where two people, two beings become one being. That's not something we would normally, you know, understand. Another reason he did this for us was so that we would understand the kind of being that he is. We have marriage in part, so we understand the concept of God being three in one. And we also have marriage so that we can understand the kind of being that we are. Because we were created in his image. And if the very essence of God is intimate relationship, and we are created in his image, then our very essence requires intimate relationship with each other, and with God. Once we were created, God showered good gifts and love on us. I mean, obviously, the Garden of Eden was incredible. In Genesis 1, 28 
and 30. Take a look at that. In this verse, God blessed Adam and Eve and he gave them, he told them three things. What's the first thing he told them? What was the first blessing? Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. What's the second blessing? Yep, rule over every living creature on earth. And what was the third blessing? The garden. The garden. Have every seed-bearing plant for food. Now think back through that, okay? Be fruitful and multiply. What would we call that? Three-letter word ends with X. <laughs> he blessed them with sex. What's the second one? Rule over the living creatures on the earth. Power. power. Bingo. Got it in one, Ashley. He blessed them with power. The third one, have every seed-bearing plant for food. Nourishment. Nourishment, satisfaction. Okay. Just, it's kind of a, like he gave them every need being satisfied. Okay. He blessed us with sex, power, and satisfaction. None of those things are bad things. The reason we crave them is because we were made for them. They are our blessing from God. They are exactly what he wants us to have. The problem is we've settled for the counterfeit instead of reality. We've chased the lie instead of pursuing the truth. So suppressing our desire for these things isn't the way to solve it, okay? The idea is to have... To, to take that to the Lord and say, Lord, I have obviously fallen for the lie and the counterfeit. Show me the reality. The hunger is there, you know. Show me the reality. Fill me with the reality. Let me understand the blessing that you want me to have, not the, the, the lie that Satan has me chasing. So in addition to showering us with good gifts and love, God just plain loved to spend time with us. He loves our companionship. He created us to be his playmate and confidant. Look at Genesis 3, verses 8 and 9. This is, this is right after the fall. Adam and Eve um, know they've sinned. And, and what this verse says is, God walked in the garden in the cool of the day, saying... Where are you? Why was he doing that? For his health? No. He was doing that because he wanted to be with them. He just wanted to walk in the cool of the day with his most favorite people in the world, you know, his prized creation, and just fellowship with them. But we were hiding. We were hiding because we disobeyed the one single thing he had asked of us. We were hiding in our sin. But even though we had allowed sin into the world, God still loved us and he still wanted a relationship with us. And that this is part of the after the fall that people miss a lot. You know, people kind of think that Adam and Eve fell and and then all relationship with God stopped, you know, and we got tossed out of the Garden of Eden and God went away somewhere. But that's really if you read these chapters in Genesis, that's not what happened at all. In fact, God wanted our relationship with him to be our most important and precious relationship. 
He continued to shower blessings on Adam and Eve and their family. He continued to provide for them. The only difference was our work became harder. Okay, But he still provided for them. And like any love relationship, when, some, when your lover gives you gifts, what do you do in return? You give gifts back, right? There's nothing more that you want to do than give that special person a gift. What, so what, you know, let's say God is your significant other, all right? What do you give the one who provides for your every need? What do you give to your constant compassion, the person who loves you better than anyone else in the world? What do you give the guy who has everything? Time and attention. Time and attention, yourself. And if you're going to give a gift, and obviously you're going to want, you're not going to want to come to the birthday with nothing in your hand, you're going to pick your very best. You know, you're going to give him the very best you can find to give. Naturally, if you love him, you're going to pick your very best. Question for you. If you give him your second best, what are you saying to him? If you keep the best for yourself and give him second best, what is the message to him? He's not important to you. He's not important. And that you're more important than he is, right? Another question. And if this is how you responded to his love and generosity, how do you think God would feel? In this situation. Let down. Let down. <clears throat> Any ideas? Hurt? Disappointed? Yeah, disappointed. Well, that's exactly what happened. Genesis 4-7. If you read the story in Genesis 4-7, Cain gave God second best and kept the best fruits for himself. And then Cain got bent out of shape when God refused to accept his gifts. And God said to him, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you, but you must master it. See, by loving himself more than God, Cain had put himself in very real danger. He had set foot on a path that would lead him away from God and into the hands of Satan. Satan. Absolutely. And Satan had nothing but evil planned for him. He has nothing but evil planned for you. God immediately took action when Cain did this and warned Cain not to do it, not to take that path. And of course, if you know the story of Cain and Abel, you know that Cain got really mad at God, turned his back on God, and committed the first murder. He murdered his brother. And from that point on, sin grew and grew and grew until the whole world was covered in wickedness and there was nothing but wickedness in every man's heart. Genesis 5, verses 5 and 6, we're kind of, you know, flipping through. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become. And that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So you got it right. You know, that's how God felt. He was grieved and his heart was filled with pain because he had been rejected 
by the very companion he had created to love him. How could something that got started so beautifully go so terribly wrong? There was only one man in the whole world whose heart was turned towards God. In Genesis 7-1, The Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. <laughs> Noah was the one man in the whole world the Lord had found righteous. Now, righteous is a term that we generally do not understand properly, and it has different meanings um, in the Old Testament than it does in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, righteous simply meant someone who has fulfilled the requirements of a relationship. That's all it means. It means you held up your end of the bargain. If you held up your end of the bargain, you were righteous. You fulfilled your half of the contract. Okay? doesn't have to do with whether you were good, whether you were bad, whether you tried hard. It all depends on the terms of the contract and whether you fulfilled them. Okay? So keep that in mind. So if God called Noah a righteous man, that means there must have been some sort of a bargain or contract between God and Noah. What did Noah do that made him righteous? What did he do that fulfilled his entire obligation to God so that God himself called Noah righteous? Well, the answer is in Genesis 6, 9. Noah was a righteous man blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah only did two things. He lived among the wicked people of his time, and he did not fall into their wickedness. He did not fall into their wickedness. And the second thing was he walked with God. That sounds somewhat familiar. Should, right? In fact, the very walking with God was what kept him from falling into wickedness. Those are two sides of the same coin. You can't really do one without the other. If you're walking before God, it will make you holy. It will make you blameless. It will keep you from sin. It will keep you from going down that path Cain went down. That's what God was trying to tell Cain. He was All he said was just, you know, don't go that way. Go this way. Don't walk with Satan. Walk with me. Walk with God. Either you're with God or you're against him. And I don't mean as a person. I mean in any given moment. Because we obviously all make good choices and bad choices during our daily lives. <laughs> all right? But at any given moment, you are either walking with God or you're walking with Satan. Those are, those are your two choices. Noah chose to walk with God, and God saved him from the flood. And afterwards, Noah and his family worshipped the Lord with sacrifices, but he didn't just pick any old animal that happened to trot off the ramp of the ark at that moment. Noah picked the clean animals. And you know what those animals were? They were the precious animals. You know why they were precious? Because they were the edible ones. Noah did a sacrifice with his most precious food source. Okay. And in Genesis 8.21, it says, The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. 
And then in Genesis 9, 1 through 7, we have another blessing. God blessed Noah and his sons, saying, what was the first blessing in Genesis 9, 1 through 7? Can you find it? Anybody? Be fruitful and multiply. What's the second one? Power, rule over the living creatures of the earth. Do you notice that it's not ruling over each other? The power is not over each other. That's the counterfeit. All right. And the third blessing was have plants and animals for food. Just don't eat the animals while they're still alive. (laughs) It's what he said. All right. But that is... Yes. Yeah. So this is the point at which we were given meat for food. Up until then, we were vegetarians. Oh, you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood in it. That means don't eat it while it's still living. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this blessing is uh, remarkably similar to one we just read, correct? Over Adam and Eve. God's idea hasn't changed. The blessing hasn't changed. So that should tell you something. That should tell you. Adam and Eve got blessed before the fall, right? Before sin. But Noah got blessed when? After the fall. It's the same blessing. Therefore, that same blessing belongs to us. All right? The blessing survived the fall. And it is available to us now. And then there was just one more thing God added. He said, do not murder, for man was made in the image of God. And we know what that means. It means that man was made for intimate relationship with each other and with God. And that is the opposite of of murder. But that wasn't a change either, was it? That's exactly what God intended from the very beginning. But life was still hard. We toiled, we sweated, and God saw our pain. And he saw we were bringing it on ourselves by walking with Satan. And it grieved God that he still had a hard time finding anyone to walk with him. Even after Noah, even after he wiped everybody else off the face of the earth, he's still having a hard time finding anybody who's righteous. And he really, really wanted to find a family. He wanted to have a close, intimate relationship, not just with one person, but with people, you know, with his creation. And he wanted to shower gifts on us, just like in the Garden of Eden. And he did find one person who wanted the same thing. And he talked to that person often. And one day, he invited this person to run away with him and elope. And here's God's marriage proposal. It's in Genesis 12, 1 and 2. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And Abram accepted the invitation. In verse 12, It says, so Abraham left as the Lord had told him and went to the land of Canaan. I brought a map with me so you can kind of picture what's happening here. This is a 
map of that part of the world back at that time. And see, this is the Mediterranean Sea. This is Egypt over here, Saudi Arabia. And over here, near the Persian Gulf, is the city of Ur, U-R. That's where Abram lived. And God called him and said, start walking. And if you will elope with me, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. So Abram packed up his wife and his nephew and his family and whatever he had. And he started walking. Now, God did not take him straight across here because this is a big desert. All right. This part, see how it's green in a kind of a, a crescent shape? That has a name. It's called the Fertile Crescent, even today. It's, it was a humongous, big, major trade route from this part of the world all the way over to Egypt. And it fed all of this area. And so Abraham just kind of got on the trade route and started walking. And he walked, 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 and he walked. And he finally got up here to Haran, which he had, I think he had some relatives up there. And, and then he, you know, stayed there a little while, and then he walked and walked and walked and walked. He walked about a thousand miles. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what his wife Sarai was saying? You know? <laughs> because Ur was a city, you know? And, 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 that, and they're out in the middle of nowhere, you know? And, they, and these are the people that, that go along this trade route. They're like, they're like slave traders and merchants and, you know, it's not, this is not good. You know, it's not fun. But he walked about a thousand miles. He finally got over here to what's called the land of Canaan, which is, if you can see, this is, this is the Dead Sea, all right? And the, and the River Jordan kind of runs up north and south right here. And, and he kind of got over in between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea. And God said, okay, you can stop now. Well, as you can imagine, land that fertile, is it going to be vacant, empty, there for the taking? No. It was completely populated over here. And they weren't populated with, you know, namby-pamby people. <laughs> it, was, it was populated with warriors, you know, people that, that, had, had, that owned the land. But when it was time to stop walking... God actually appeared to Abram. He didn't just say something. He appeared to him, um, uh, apparently. And like it would be a form of an angel usually is how Abram tended to see God. Um, and, and Genesis 12, 7 said, God said to, the, to your offspring, I will give this land. Didn't say I'm going to give it to you, Abram. Never mind you walked a thousand miles, but I'm going to give the land to your offspring. Abram decided that he would, Trust God and stay. Then Abram's blessing evaporated. If we ever, you know, study Genesis together, we will, you know, Abram had a lot of adventures, especially at the beginning when he was in, in, in the land of Canaan. And we'll study that if we ever study Genesis. But the end result of all of his adventures was he got to be really, really rich. And so did his nephew Lot. And even though they didn't own any land at all, they owned so much cattle and so much livestock and their families had gotten so big that the land couldn't support them together. And so Abram said to Lot, you know, we're going to have to split up. He said, I, I tell you what, you know, let's go up on this hill 
and and remember that they're 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 in between the River Jordan and you know way far off to the west is is the Mediterranean Sea, but they're very they're actually near the Jordan. Okay, and they go up on this hill, and Abram says, "Okay, Lot, you know I'll let you pick first. You know if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right." Lot looks around. He sees that off to the left, it's kind of deserty, rocky, not a lot of water source. Off to the east, on the other hand, he sees the Jordan River and the R- River Valley. Okay, green, beautiful. Lot says, I'll go east. Now, bummer, right? <laughs> Abram, at this point, is, think- is probably thinking, gosh, I-, I really messed up there. I should have given him a, a north-south choice so that at least I would have had a you know, if he went south, I'd go north and I'd have a water supply. But too late now, Lot had already picked the best of the land for himself. And now Abram's saying, you know, I've really totally messed up my descendants as well because now the land they're going to inherit is going to be this dry, arid land that, that is not nearly as beautiful as what Lot's is. And the Lord said, trust me. Look at Genesis 13, 14 through 17. The Lord said to Abram, lift up your eyes. All the land you see, even the part Lot took, I will give to you and your offspring forever. And I will make your offspring as numerous as the dust of the earth. So God said to him, it doesn't matter that you had to divide it up and that Lot took part. All of it is going to belong to you. I still promise you what I originally promised you, that all of it will belong to you, to your offspring, and that your offspring will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. So Abram believes God, despite the fact that he's starting to get pretty old about this time. But he settles down in the land he's in, and he lives his life as a foreigner and a visitor in the land he's been promised. Then we get to Genesis 15. 15.1. Sometime later, God appeared to Abram in a vision and said, I am your shield and your very great reward. And Abram says, oh gosh, I'm really glad you showed up because you know what? I'm getting really old and I still don't even have one child yet. I'm a little worried. How can I be the father of nations if I have not even one child yet and I'm getting old? And in Genesis 15, verses 5 through 7, God said, Abram, look up at the heavens and count the stars if you, if you can count them. That's how numerous your offspring will be. And by the way, I have brought you here to give you this land. And Genesis 15, 6 Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it as righteousness. Now you know what that means. All that was required of Abram to uphold his end of the bargain was to believe that God would do what he promised. No matter how unlikely it seemed, no matter how impossible it looked, Abram believed and God said it was enough. And you know what? That's still the case today. That has not changed. All we have to do is believe the Lord will solve our problems, no matter how big our problems look. 
All we have to do is believe that the Lord will give us our heart's desire, no matter how impossible it seems. All we have to do is believe that he loves us. So now we're to the covenant is formalized, part one. God then formalized his pledge to Abram. The engagement and the elopement is about to become a marriage. Back then, the way a solemn contract was formalized was pretty gory. What they did was they sliced a bunch of animals in half, they laid them out in a row, and you walked, the two parties to the contract walked between the pieces of the animals. And it was a symbolic way of saying, let it be done to me as has been done to these animals if I ever break this covenant. <laughs> Too bad we don't do it today. Yeah. <laughs> so we had to be pretty serious if we were going to do that, okay? So that was reserved for really big deal covenants, okay? Well, here's what God said. God told Abram to slaughter the animals and lay them out in preparation for just such a contract. Abram sliced them up laid him out, nothing happened. He's, the vultures start coming. Abram shoes them away. It, this is all in the Bible. I'm not making this up. Abram shoes them away. And finally, nighttime begins to fall. And Abram, as darkness came on Genesis, I'm in 15, verse 9 through 21. The Lord placed Abram into a deep sleep. Then God, in the form of a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch, passed between the pieces of the animals. You see, Abram didn't even pass between the animals. God alone passed through the animals and said, I am making this promise to you. And God said, your descendants will be enslaved for 400 years in a foreign country, but they will come out afterwards with great possessions and will return here to this land. And you yourself will live to a ripe old age and die in peace. Now, there's some new information. That didn't sound quite exactly like the covenant we were expecting him to say, does it? What it says, and Abram now knows that even if he personally never owns this land, his descendants certainly will own it. But before they own it, they will be slaves for 400 years in a foreign country. And he knows God is very serious about this because he just passed through the blood covenant. He just, God himself walked through those animals. So then there's a little time gap. And then there's the second half of the covenant is formed. The second half of the ceremony is done. The covenant is formalized part two. Abram is now 99 years old. Okay. But the Lord is ready to finalize the marriage contract. And Abram all this time has believed steadfastly despite all the odds. Abram has chosen to believe, even when in his mind he couldn't see how on earth the Lord could do this. In Genesis 17, skip forward a couple of chapters, and we're in Genesis 17:1. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. That sounds familiar. We don't really have a word in English that conveys the same meaning as the word used here for walking before God, you know, right there. That word before means to turn facing. 
It's like God is saying, walk with your face towards me. Walk face to face with me. Turn your countenance to God. That's what's being said here. It's not walk in front of me. It's walk facing me. Okay. I am the Lord God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. That's exactly what Noah did, right? God said he was blameless. Noah was blameless and he walked with God. And we already talked about the fact that just walking with God is how you get to be blameless. It's, you know, it's, it's, they, they go hand in hand. They walk the same. And now God is saying to Abram, walk before me and be blameless. Walk with your face turned to me and you will be blameless. This is not a new command. God wanted Adam and Eve to walk with him in the garden and be blameless. He wanted Cain to walk with him and not with Satan. But Cain chose sin. Noah walked with God and was blameless. And God promised Abram the same thing. Walk with your face to me and be blameless. If you find yourself struggling with sin, turn your face to God. That's all you have to do. Just turn your face to God. Choose to turn your face to God, even if you don't even know what that means or how exactly that works. Just pray it. Choose it. And choose to walk where you know he is. That you know how to do. Where do you, where do you find God? You know where you find God. You find God in the scripture. You find God in other people who walk with God. You find God in meetings like this, in groups like this. Put yourself there. Walk with God where you know he is. And he will make you blameless. He will make you holy. He will make you blameless because he has conquered sin. You don't have to do it. He already did it. Genesis 17.4 Then God said, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. And here's the part where he says, and now I pronounce you man and wife. Okay. <laughs> this is the part where he says, this is the, this is the marriage. He says, your name will no longer be Abram, but will be Abraham. There was only one time in the Bible that I know of that I can remember anyway, that anybody ever asked God what his name was. We always called him God, right? But Moses one time asked him what his name was. And it's worth looking ahead in the Bible to see that conversation because it has meaning here. Look at Exodus 3.14. Okay. Exodus is the book right after Genesis. So, chapter 3, verse 14. And God said, when Moses asked him what his name was, I am who I am. That's in quotes. That's like, that's my name. My name is I am who I am. This is what you are to say to them. If they ask you who I, who sent you, you say, I am sent me to you. He said, my name is I am. So in the renaming of Abram to Abraham, there is particular significance. And I brought some papers to show you. It's a handout to show you that um, God actually gave Abraham, let me have one of them, actually gave Abraham his name. Just like we swap names in a marriage ceremony now. 
If you look at this exchanging of names, the blue Hebrew spells Abram. And I don't know how much you know about Hebrew, but you read it from, from, from right to left. It's backwards from us. That little in-looking thing is silent. So this is a, and, and you only see the consonants. So this is a B-R-M, and that spells Abram. Okay. And then over in the red is I am, which is Ha-Ya. You know, and, and it's, it's like, you know, Yahweh, it's, it's kind of an unpronounceable kind of name, but this means I am, and it's basically two H sounds with a Y in the middle. Okay. And look at how you spell Abraham in Hebrew. Abram, which is the blue letters with that H stuck in the middle of it. Okay. So God gave part of his name to Abraham, to Abram, and called him Abraham. But you know what's even cooler? When God told Moses his name was I Am, in the very next breath, God said, oh, but they might know me by my, my other name. Look at the next verse where he tells him what his other name was. Verse 15, say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. God called himself the God of Abraham, from this marriage ceremony forward in the Bible, God took Abraham's name into his own and called himself from there on God of Abraham. So back to the marriage ceremony. After God and Abraham exchanged names, God continued his promises in Genesis 17, 7 and 8. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and and you and your descendants after you for generations to come. And here it is. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. So, you know, we already know he's going to get the land. But this is a whole nother phrase that we're seeing. God is saying... In this marriage ceremony, here's the, the, the crux of what's getting promised is you get the land and I will be your God. I will be the God of your children. I will be the God of all of your descendants after you. Question for you. What does God mean when he says, I will be your God? What does that mean to be somebody's God? He'll, he'll, what, I'm sorry, provide for him. They're only to, to worship him. Only to worship him. That was to have an exclusive relationship. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. What else? I mean, what's God's part in this? You know, we have to believe. We know all we had to do was believe and just walk face to face with him. We just had to be with him. Right. But what, what does it mean when God said he will be our God? What does that mean? I'm thinking fatherly relationship like that. Fatherly relationship. Yeah. I'm not explaining that correctly, but that's where my brain went. Attributes, like, what are you thinking? You th- I, I expect love, right? But what do we expect from a God? You know? Take care of you. Take care of you in every way, right? Provide for you. Defend you. Love you. If you're the cherished bride of God, you're going to expect even more than that. You're going to expect gifts. You can expect your every need anticipated, right? I mean, we're women. We know. 
<laughs> okay. I mean, God made us this way. And, and, and when we, when God says, I will be their God, he's stepping up to that plate and saying, I will do all of those things for you. Then comes Abraham's part of the marriage ceremony. God says, aside from the walk and be blameless part, Genesis 17.10, As for you, every male among you shall be circumcised. Now that sounds a little bit bizarre until you realize that circumcision was a ritual that was widely practiced in ancient cultures. God didn't just make it up on the spot here. Okay, he wasn't just being cruel. This actually was already done at that time. It was for sure already in use at this time because this whole um, contract with Abraham is happening around 1900 B.C. And we have in Egypt some carvings from 202350 B.C., so like 100 to 400 years earlier that actually depict the ritual of circumcision. Okay. <laughs> and you have to look, kind of look over to the figure on the right. There's two figures on the right, and one of the guys is kind of kneeling down, and he's got a knife. <laughs> it's not looking good. <laughs> yeah, pretty sure. that. Not a TSA agent. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So God's conversation with Abraham is taking place around 1900 BC, one or 200 years after that carving was done in Egypt. No pun intended on that. But so what did the ancient cultures use this ritual for? If you research it, you find that they use the ritual as a rite of passage at puberty or in preparation for marriage. Generally, those two things would happen very close so together. Does it happen as a baby like it does now? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it definitely, yeah, it was done in preparation for marriage. And in fact, the root word for father in law or wife's father means one who circumcises. So not <laughs> so, so you have to be pretty confident. <laughs> All right. Um, so then the Lord proceeded to change Abraham's wife's name as well. Her name was Sarai, S-A-R-A-I. And he, na- he changed her name to Sarah. He put the H in her name as well because... When you're married, the two become one. And Sarah was intended to be part of this contract as well. The blessing is not just for the men. It's also for the women. It's for all of the descendants. And God reiterated his promise to give Abraham a son. Abraham fell face down. You know, like he, this is hilarious. Abraham falls face down like he's worshiping God, right? But what he's really doing, he's laughing. He's laughing with his face in the dirt because he's like, God, 
no way. You know, he's thinking, how is God going to give me a son? I'm 99. Sarah's 90. She's been barren our whole marriage. There is no way we're having a son. And God says, no, Abraham, I am giving you a son and I will do it by this time next year. And by the way, you've got to name him Isaac now. You know what Isaac means? He laughs. (laughs) (laughs) And when the Lord left him, Abraham immediately began using his new name. And he went that very day and circumcised every male in his household. 